so I started having nightmares so you'd stay with me at night and Dad wouldn't have a chance to thrust inside you. You shouldn't have worried. Welcome to the Magic Lantern Podcast, an ongoing informal discussion of the films we love and the things we love about them. I am Erica Long. And I am Cole Rolane. Each episode of The Magic Lantern will be devoted to one film that we alternately select and we will discuss why it is significant to us. We are at episode 58 this time around, which is Erica's choice, so let's find out what she has selected. I have chosen Jean Dielman, 23 Quai du Commerce, 1080 Bruxelles, from 1975, written and directed by Chantal Ackerman, with Delphine Serig and Jan Decourt. The film covers three days in the life of a woman and mother, Jean Dielman. Now, I have to say, I'm pretty nervous going into this recording. How come? If the last episode, There Will Be Blood, was a very personal choice for you, this is a very personal choice for me. And because this film is a feast for the eyes and the brain... I'm concerned that I'm just going to be scratching the surface and I can't possibly describe to you how important this film is. Well, maybe you're trying to take on too much. That's possible. It is three and a half hours long, for one thing. It's regarded as one of the greatest films of the 20th century, for another thing. But making sure that we say everything that needs to be said about a film was never our charter, exactly. It's just the films we love and the things we love about them. So don't put any undue pressure on yourself. Because I don't want, spoiler alert, to get scissor stabbed because you are feeling the pressure. Okay. I'm also trying to be the shepherd of the important contextual elements that underpin this. And so maybe that's also too grand of an undertaking, but I'm going to do my best. Well, there's a lot to say about it. And I have a lot of questions for you. And Chantal Ackerman is one of my absolute favorite filmmakers. I'm kind of mad that you stole this one from me, actually. Because had you not done it, I would have eventually gotten around to it. I'm a huge fan. And this was actually my first Chantal Ackerman. And I only saw it for the first time this year. But it has made such an impression that it will live with me forever. So are you ready to get into it? Let's do it. We begin on Tuesday. This is the first day. And we see Jean first. And I was struck by what seemed to be the layers of protection and upkeep involved in just her physical appearance. She starts the day with coffee, and then we're introduced to a man whom we don't really see, because the camera is at that fixed position, mid-body. The framing and the static camera are crucial to the way this unfolds. I've never seen anything shot in the widescreen format like it is the 1.66 ratio that looks more like a series of squares. It looked full screen and completely confined and cramped the entire time. And brilliantly, I love the use of the static camera so that you are getting nothing but this fixed shot that requires the actors to move in and out of it. And this combination of savvy direction and Seyrig's performance in particular, deciding to depict exactly what happens in and outside of the frames, it's just one excellent insightful choice after another. And I want to add that there are no tricks at any point. There's no moment where you think, wow, the only way that this shot could be accomplished is because there's no wall behind them, for example. 
Every movement, every task, every chore is depicted honestly, and each of those things takes the time that they take. Which, again, is essential. I'm not sure how much of our audience will have seen this or is familiar with it. I get the feeling probably 50-50, but there's a significant portion of our audience, I think, that may not have seen a film like this before. This is an experience unlike any other. If you are only used to mainstream cinema and conventional narratives, and you don't, like I did, before I could even put a name to it, long for films that were made out of the things that other movies leave out, this film is for you. For others, it might be tough. It's a bit on the experimental side, at least relative to your average Hollywood fare. And the reason I say that it's crucial that you see these chores take the exact amount of time that they take is so that you can feel the full weight of the tedium. For some people, this is just going to be three and a half hours of Delphine Seyrig peels potatoes, I know. But if you give yourself over to the rhythms of it and the established patterns of it, and then you can detect a little more carefully the disruption in her routine after you become familiar with the routine, it makes the way that it unravels and the ending that much more significant. And this Tuesday, this first day, it's all about establishing that routine. And for Ackerman, it was essentially a love letter to her mother. As you so deftly mentioned, showing the things that other films leave out, this was about showing the grace in those chores that we don't experience on screen otherwise. And already we come to the first important question, and why this film was so radical. Why don't they show those things? Why is it that the day-to-day -day life of women in particular ranks so low in the hierarchy of images that make it to a movie screen? I would say that the people who are making those films, the vast majority of films, do not feel that women are important. Either as audience or as subject matter? Yes, both. I think that is a very important addition and distinction to make. To me, there is a reason that many houses were designed and are still designed to have a kitchen separate of the rest of the living area, including with doors. That's so that women don't have to be seen or heard. Now, having said that, I promise that I am not trying to be strident, even though that may have come off that way. I don't think you sound strident. That's another thing I would stop worrying about if I were you. We are going to get into a lot of issues dealing with how women have been treated by the culture at large and by cinematic culture. And anyone out there who thinks, oh, what are you talking about? Women haven't gotten a raw deal all this time. Then they need to educate themselves. I don't think it will come off as soapbox haranguing because that's not our style, but we will definitely talk matter-of-factly about these things. But it is interesting because even Ackerman herself had trouble with some of the contradictory elements of all this. She struggled with it her whole life. She did and did not want it to be considered a women's film, quote-unquote, a feminist film, quote-unquote. And I see exactly why, and I agree with her in a lot of instances, because it's that labeling, that trying to contain a thing, that makes it more narrow, less universal, less approachable. You slap these labels on it, and immediately it becomes something that an entire segment of the population doesn't want anything to do with, just based on how you have now classified and categorized it. And going back to that struggle that she had that you had mentioned about this is a very powerful feminist statement she stated matter-of-factly, as was her way, at the time that there was no women's cinema. And to get back into this action as well, I'm really interested in how this aspect of her life, the sex work, 
is treated by other critics, other descriptors, other ways that people might want to view this and Jean herself. I felt that when I was watching this, and possibly you can remember to the first time you saw it as well, that this was clearly also part of her established routine. It's not as if she decided, well, I'm a bit short on cash this week, so I'll go out and find a John. No, definitely not. Everything that we see portrayed here is a long established routine. You get the feeling. Order is so crucial. Routine is so crucial to this character that it's clear that it has been going on for a long time because anytime anything even slightly disrupts it, it doesn't take long for it to undo everything. And with the sex work, possibly this is a quibble on my part, but whenever I read about this in that shorthand that people have, it's described as, and she also turns the occasional trick. I do not see it that way. I completely agree with you, but do you see that in almost every other bit of analysis? That you've seen, that you've read at least? You know, I'd have to look again. Maybe it's just those short pieces. Maybe it's just those go-to places where you're looking for a short description of the film. But I saw it over and over again, and for me, it is completely counterintuitive to the character. To me, it totally misses the point of what's being established here. Why do you think people resort to that? Are they trying to diminish the sex work thing or ignore it altogether? Discomfort with the subject? Or just a lack of perception on their part? I am really not sure. It's almost as if that phrase somehow spices it up. Are you trying to sell it to some Hmm. other audience, do you think? I'm sure at least some people were pursuing that angle. But I did note, as we were watching the film this most recent time, the nudity that is in it is not erotic. Not eroticized at all. It is matter-of-fact and day-to-day, just like everything else. There's only a little bit of it. But it's very mechanical, much like every other aspect of her life. I believe you're talking about the bath scene, is that correct? Yes. The bath is as precise and detailed and complete as everything she does. It is not for pleasure. And so again, I appeal to those people that might be coming at this from a slightly more conventional angle. It is not exciting in the sense that you normally think of films being exciting, but it is a mesmerizing film. I think the word hypnotic is what applies to my viewing and my perception of this. I have to say, I was on the edge of my seat the whole time because I felt immediately something terrible is going to happen. Is that because of the kinship you feel with the character and the thorough understanding you felt like you had instantly? Is that what struck you right away? I could just imagine the 500th week of having the same Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday meal the five millionth scrubbing of the pot, and just wondering how this was going to unravel. But for now, also speaking of not for pleasure, the light is what tells us that time has passed. And her John is leaving. We just see her hands clasped in front of her as he's putting his things back on, giving her the money, telling her that he'll see her next week. And then she proceeds on with her day. It's all about that economy of space, I think less cramped, and I think more about utilizing every surface. It's about turning lights off when you leave a room, turning them on when you go in. And it's also about having the presence of mind, because this is an established routine, that you have started your meal prep before the John has gotten here, so that you can be ready on time. If you don't have a kitchen timer, you should boil potatoes just exactly the amount of time it takes to have sex. 
What struck me the most in this next part is about the one chair in the kitchen and how we watch this woman move in her surroundings, but the surroundings don't move around her. Everything is meant to be contained. And then besides that very specific bath and then cleaning the bathtub afterwards, it's airing out the bedroom, it's tidying and smoothing everything down, and then there's the moment where she hears the door and there's a bit of a smile, and her teenage son Sylvain has arrived. When he comes in, they go through the same pantomime routine with the coat and the scarf that she does with her Johns. It mirrors that exchange almost exactly. So immediately I am thinking, which of these acts is more intimate? Everything she does is about service on one level or another. In her case, I think it's clear, but for some people, maybe not. To me, the preparation of the food is obviously the more intimate act. And she certainly intimates that sex can be without intimacy of any kind in a later conversation that they have. But with a film this wide open, that allows us, in a Rorschach test sort of way, to imprint ourselves on it. All of these things carry the freight that we give them. So, in your case, do you read the food or the sex as the more important part of her day? I think anything revolving around the care of the sun is the most important part. When we see her in a different day, during lunchtime when her son does not come home for that period, she only has a simple sandwich for herself. Everything else around the preparation of the evening meal takes the most collective time. Well, since you put it that way, is the sex not directly related to the support of the son, though? It is the income. It is the way which she provides for him. Which leads to my question to you and to the audience in general. What is it that you think the son tells himself about how they are able to just simply live? Because it's not as though she's leading one of those movie double lives where she says, oh, I go out to work during the day, and here's my job, but don't ever come visit me at it. It seems as though there's no conversation that takes place about that. So what do you think he believes in terms of practical realities? I believe he probably thinks there is some sort of arrangement, uh, pension, I'm not sure exactly what, from the dead father. She is a widow. On top of that, he's not very worldly it seems. He seems even younger than he's supposed to be to me. I think he's the type that has no inkling that any such thing is going on and that years later, if he finds out, would be devastated by it because he has a sort of old-fashioned and naive idea about sex and romantic relationships. And if we are to assume that he's essentially high school age, I don't think that he's supposed to be in a college situation Though he looks older, I still thought all of these ministrations that she's doing for him are completely unnecessary at this stage of his life. She infantilizes him some. And he certainly seems to encourage that. And for the next several minutes, they are eating together, sharing this meal. My sense is in the same way that they've done it every day for a very long time. That's actually pointed out very cleverly and subtly, I think. With that whole, is it good exchange, she asks him if he's enjoying it and mentions that she used more water than last week. So if you haven't already picked up on it, there are little clues to lead you along to make you understand, yes, this is the 9,000th time they have had stew and potatoes. And it's in the way that she cleans around him. Another one of those subtle instances, I think, that indicates just how well-worn this path is. I love this shot of her going back and forth to the kitchen that 
we see from the hallway vantage point. We see her do it multiple times as she's clearing the table, bringing things back and forth from kitchen to dining room. The camera does not stay on her son at the table reading like other films might. Or cut to the kitchen where some significant action may be taking place. We see the way station. We see the spot in between. And with that little thing, we are forced to consider how many times she has repeated this movement over and over through the years. The one subtle difference this evening is the letter. This is the letter from Aunt Fernande. And before she reads it, we didn't even know what her name was, and we didn't know that she was a widow. This is information we learn strictly from the letter. Now, Fernand lives in Canada with her husband and her children, and all I could think during the recitation of this letter was, what kind of life must she also be living? Bound by snow and distance, burdened with these children, or blessed, however you want to think about it, <laughs> away from her husband from periods of time, and yet she's urging... Jean to remarry, that she's still a beautiful woman. It's not too late. Your husband's been dead six years at this point, but they don't really discuss it further. The one detail that I think points out what sort of life it is beyond just the family details is that she relates to Jean, the women here all drive, which is a detail that I love. I think it's really illustrative of where she's at, the things that she is constantly thinking about how things may be different in this new place that she has gone to, how times may be changing in 1975. There's a lot bound up in that one little detail, I feel like. And how you can clearly remain isolated amongst a bustle of activity. So as the evening goes on, they work on Sylvain's homework together. He does the recitation of the Baudelaire poem. She has her knitting practice. They have the radio. At one point, they prepare the house to go away for a moment. We don't know where they actually go. And that part had really puzzled me. I thought, do they have to move their car because Tuesday they have to park on the opposite side of the street? Or are they taking their trash out? What are they doing? And I think you had a really interesting take on that. My take is, I don't know. But I do know that whatever it is, it's the same thing that they have always done on that evening for the last six years. And when they get back home, it's time for bed. It's time for everything to get put back away again. It's time to perform your toilette for the evening. And it's time to tuck the son into bed. She tells him that you're just like your father. You're always reading, which prompts him to open up a discussion, which I think that they have had many times before, because as she talks about, in answer to his question, how she met his father, it sounds as though she's reading. And this is the most complete verbal explanation that we've had so far of her inner and outer life. Is it safe to say in a film where so little is said that it is crucial that we listen closely when someone speaks, both to what they say and the way they say it? And in this first day, there aren't close-ups per se. We're not lingering on her face and examining all of her gestures. We can only see that from a bit of a distance, so we have to pay attention. She's going over these circumstances that to no one would seem romantic. She didn't feel like getting married, but it seemed like the thing to do. She did specifically cite wanting a child, though. And basically says, things like that happened after the war. The most interesting part for me is the phrase that she uses about meeting his father. This was as the war was ending, and she says, he liberated us. And then they have a very short 
discussion about sex or making love as he terms it. And he says, if I were a woman, I would only make love with someone I loved and only when deeply in love. And basically she responds that, well, you're not a woman, so what would you know? Two things there. Well, a little question that leads to a larger question, I guess. What is the strictly feminine thing that she is talking about, that she is trying to tell him in one way or another, that he is not getting? What is it that is specifically feminine about this approach to love and sex? And expanding on that, this notion of feminine domesticity that she embodies, what exactly is it? What are the characteristics that define it as such? What makes the way you clean the house or you have sex different from the way I would do it? Or maybe that's not even putting it the right way, but do you see a distinct split between those two things, feminine and masculine? This is where I personally really struggle. I see this as a distinctly feminine story, and at the same time, I don't think it has only an application to a female audience. Mm. She did specifically say you could have just as easily made this about a man. To me, like everything else with Chantal Ackerman, there's an ellipsis there. You could have just as easily made this about a man, dot, 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 but you didn't. But the story is not that this time. So what's your struggle? Back to your point just a second ago. It strikes me then that of that time, though I'm now talking about at that time, this would have still been 10 to 15 to 20 years earlier. It strikes me more that if you had done this as a man story, it would have been the courtship of Eddie's father. (laughs) Which I know is ridiculous, but it would just seem so much more difficult to take if it were the widower in this position. Difficult for who to take? I think the audience at large, starting with me, because my questions would all be based around what I see as the difference in opportunities that this man would have mm-hmm. had instead of this woman. Opportunities for employment, opportun- all kinds of opportunities. I can't imagine the widower having to, or not having to, that's probably not the right verb, choosing to take on sex work in order to make money. Mm-hmm. So even as progressive as we want to be about sex work, which I have no problem with, however you make money consenting adults and all that, as long as you're not hurting anyone, do what you like. But we can't ignore the element of oppression that is going with it, that has always gone with it in this case? I absolutely cannot. So I guess the struggle comes from modern day me living in this specific circumstance with you, Cole Rolaine. Mm -hmm. Because of you, not because of me, because of you... We strive for a household in which the statement, well, you're a man, what do you know, will not be uttered. Or, you're a woman, what do you know, will not be uttered. Well, you make that sound like that's just me, because you are a completely equal participant in that. I am now, but I have to reflect back on my past and the world that I live in once I'm outside of this house, where it's a lot of, oh man cave Hmm. and woman cave (laughs) it's a lot of stuff like that and so i say that this is generated by you i don't mean to say that you had to force me into that but truly before you i do feel like i lived in a separated world any man that i was with was a man we had different experiences different perceptions and it was based in gender or at least that's what we wanted to tell ourselves And our situation is different how? You established with me, outside of me, that your world does not work that way. And you are not buying into that, and you are not perpetuating that. 
And that carries into a lot of other aspects of life shorthand that we do not choose to participate mm -hmm. in. So back again to trying to articulate that struggle, that question that you asked. I truly believe that the oppression of women has been going on for eons and continues to go on. I truly believe that a sense of individualism does not necessarily apply to this character in this film. By that, I mean, I don't see other amazing opportunities out there for her that seem like they would be so great that she could just then go off in a new direction. And I feel like the more I try to answer your question, the further afield I get, because this does feel very, very personal to me. I watch this enraptured by it and also horrified by it because I felt like I was watching my day-to-day -day struggle on screen, minus the sex work. Well, that makes me curious. Is that the source of some of your conflict then? Because if our situation, as you describe it, is more ideal than you've ever had before, and you are no longer butting up against these fabricated ideas of what it means to be a man, what it means to be a woman, you realize we can choose how we want to be. Are you looking at this and relating to it as in, this was me, or it is still me? I do believe that even though those concepts are fabricated and we choose to believe them for specific purposes, they can be fabricated and the oppression can still exist. Mm -hmm. So you and I can say, there is no difference between the two of us outside of education or experience or personal history. At ground level, we have the same motivations generally. And the moment I walk out the door, something else very specific can be expected of me by 10 out of 10 people. Mm -hmm. So then what I'm watching on this screen, how much is just simply driven by what my personality is? So if we come back again to, if this were to be the story of a man doing those things, I can understand that an, a man would also exhibit those behaviors and that same level of compulsion. Right. I think that's the question that I was specifically trying to get at in that everyone feels pressure in their daily life, or a lot of people do. Anyone with a family sometimes has to struggle to provide for that family, regardless of gender. Just keeping things in order the way you want them to go, just to wake up and have a day go how you would expect it and like it to go, that's a genderless issue. Absolutely. So what about her struggle is particular to her womanhood? And I think you may have answered this somewhat already when you were talking about the limited resources and the choices available to her. But did you want to expand on that? Is there something that we haven't gotten to yet that's a bigger part of that idea? First, I have to say something, or otherwise I'm going to forget it, okay. so sorry. The key, I think, for me, I've been thinking about this a lot, it's what you had just said about everybody basically wants their day to go as they would like it to be. They want their things where they want them, etc. And I think it comes down to living with another person or people. Once, essentially, your life is not solely your own anymore, it's an entirely different world to navigate. And that is son or spouse or anyone, family member, roommate. Even though you and I may not have the same struggles, you have your own struggles with navigating your life as it works with mine. So now having said all of that, I feel like you still asked me something that I haven't answered. <laughs> okay. I'm sorry. About the feminine roots of her domesticity and what defines that for her. Like I said, I think you've answered some of it. I just didn't want to gloss over and leave out anything vital to that. But of course, we still have a long way to go here. I want to work with you to answer that question. 
I was born in 1975 when this movie came out. You were born in 1970. We have bridged specific generational styles. When I was a kid, my mother went back to college, got a degree, was working, was out of the house. At the same time, our neighbors across the street, whom I consider to be my second family, that mother Becky was the sort of mother of that time who ate after everyone else had finished. She also did a lot of things for her sons, things that when we were roughly the same age, I had already been doing for myself for a long period of time. And that is not to suggest that those women are gone from the earth. But I think, and correct me if I'm wrong, it seemed to be what you would see more often. Maybe in our case, my mother took off work when I was born for a while, but went back to work when I was very young. And they both had equivalent jobs, actually, pretty much working for the government. I saw a little bit of that with some of my friends, but I think more often than not, I saw both parents working. I think we were the exception on the block. And my dad actually was home for long periods of time with me more often than my mom was because they had different schedules. But 90% of the rest of the women on the block all had children, all stayed at home. We were all the same age. It was a gigantic suburb. We all went to school together. So I think we kind of stuck out a little bit. Maybe that's, again, just my perception. And then, of course, Jean would have been our grandparents' age. She was born before the war started, was a very young person during the war. It was still early days when it was not common to have working women all over the place. And the only other women that she encounters in any kind of a business setting, these are retail workers, people who run the grocery store, the yarn store, and then another mother who lives in the same building, played by Ackerman herself. And we only hear her voice. And we only hear the voice of Aunt Fernand as well, who also doesn't work. So I don't think we're looking at a generation of women as exemplified by Jean with a world of possibility open to them. And then at the same time, I also don't feel that you necessarily have to choose to live your life in those circumscribed ways day after day after day. We'll save that for the end. That is a much bigger okay. conversation that I want to get to about breaking points and just exactly what the options are. Because we mentioned options are limited. How limited are they? That's a question I want to answer in a little more detail later, though. As we come to the end of day one for her, I want to ask you one last very significant thing. If everything she does is in service to someone else, what does she find satisfaction in? This is me projecting onto her. I do not feel that cleaning or tidying or arranging are in service to you or anyone else. It's fully for me because I feel like I would go crazy if I had to sit in my own filth, which could quickly happen in this house. <laughs> or if I had to kick through the same pile of whatever. Or if, because you have seen my parents' house, have every inch of this house covered in something. Is that also why you gravitate to this film, the minimalism that you would like to? One hundred million thousand percent. When they get home from wherever it is that they've gone and they immediately put away their coat and scarf and everything, it is the moment that most encapsulates the film for me. It is my fantasy and also my prison. Okay, you're going to have to explain that one a little bit for me. I so want things to be put away, neatly, tidily, not in my way. But I don't want to do it every single day. <laughs> So damned if you do, damned if you don't. There is no, eh, 
These dishes can wait until tomorrow, and being okay with that? It is my choice in my prison, and in order to make peace with this prison, I've had to decide I am okay with these certain number of things, and beyond that, something has to be done. I don't mean to suggest that they are sane or rational, but they exist for me. It is very real for me. Okay, so do I need to reframe the question then? I guess, because do you feel like the things that she does, those things are in service to other people? Yes, but much like with any other people, they wouldn't notice if the scrub brush was not hung up in the exact place, or nor would they care. We gotta talk about that kitchen design too. The curtains over the burner are killing me. And where the scrubber goes, the water would just drip down onto the floor as opposed to over the sink. It makes no sense. But anyway, otherwise I love it. <laughs> Everything has an exact place. Okay. Questions of who it's for aside, what do you think that she takes satisfaction in? Not what is it that she has to do to preserve her sanity. Do you think she derives satisfaction from either those things or anything else? No. Because I was about to say, I don't see it as satisfaction, I see it as necessary. I think you made a little bit of a joke, but I think it's real. All of those small things you have to do in order to keep the darkness away, that does describe what it's like. I don't know the difference for her between compulsion and satisfaction. Just to clarify, I'm not talking only about the things we see when I ask does she find satisfaction in anything? I'm not saying, does she find satisfaction in the things we see her do? I'm asking at all. Not just the routine, the monotony. Are there other things in her inner life, things we don't see depicted, do you imagine, that she takes satisfaction in? The two moments that stand out for me, those are what we do see, but I can only kind of extrapolate. The first, like I mentioned, when she hears the door and knows that her son has come home, she has that bit of a smile. And that's not a bit of a rueful smile, like, okay, here comes Dumbo again. I don't think so. I didn't read it that way in her face. And the second is when she is doing her knitting to the radio and she's humming. I don't know. I was inclined to go with you 100% when you said no initially, before I even broadened it. Because to me, the things we see depicted, the things of that nature that you mentioned, are definitely still on that list of, I have to fill every second of every day or else the shadows come for me. None of that is done with joy. None of that is done in pursuit of just the thing itself. All of it is done as part of a much longer list and set of things that keep me from thinking about other things. So when you say no, I'm with you all the way. And now we end day one. Tuesday is over as she is setting her alarm clock in preparation to do it all over again on Wednesday. Wednesday dawns and Jean is beginning her normal routine as we've come to understand it, putting out her clothes, getting the morning things ready for when her son will be waking up and getting ready for school, getting out his shoes to buff, and again, everything has a place and a use. We watch her grinding the beans for the coffee, moving the chair in and out so that she can access what's in the drawer and that, that is the silverware. She then wakes up her son. He has the first seat at the table. And I was struck again, something I believe I mentioned back in Tuesday, as she is correcting his coat and his scarf. Again, these actions seem to be not realistic for his age. There's a small, subtle difference today. Maybe not so subtle because it's the spoken words that we hear when he is asking for 
possibly more money today than he would normally take with him. So she has to go to that tureen where she keeps the funds that she earns in order to give him more cash for the day. I like this symbol. I like this domestic piece of accoutrement that contains the money from her sex work that then immediately gets transferred for the care and upkeep of her offspring. I mentioned earlier about how I think he would be devastated eventually if he ever finds out the truth, but likely he will also be one of these men that clings to and perpetuates this whole the mother and the whore stereotype because he literally has one and the same and none of it exemplified more by this terrine in the center of the house. You mentioned it's one of a set of subtle variations that begins to happen and that is one of the things I love so much about Chantal Ackerman. In this film in particular, the attention she pays to these subtle changes in mood and rhythm departures from regular patterns and how significant those things can be even if they seem very small and it made me think at this point could anyone else have played this part other than Delphine Serig exactly I love what she did with it and I'm not suggesting that someone else would be better but I start to think just in terms of subtle variations from actor to actor how interesting this story would be and different if it were Isabelle Huppert if it were Catherine Deneuve I mean the The list is long and illustrious. What each individual woman would have brought to this story and how much fun it would be to see alternate universes where this was played by all of my favorites. Can I take a bit of a tangent and talk about Delphine for a moment? Sure, please. I am still and will always be catching up on my world cinema. So there are giant holes in my viewing, even though I'm such a Francophile. And so this is the first film that I've seen her in. Ah, you haven't seen Marion Band? I haven't. I think you will love it when we get the chance to watch it together. I'm sure I will. So I was really struck by her. She's tremendously beautiful and is called upon in this film to have such a rigorous, restrained, minimalistic style to fit the film. And through that has managed to convey so much. I'm also fascinated by the idea that you just brought up. I think it would be wonderful to see this film remade with other actresses. I would have loved if Chantal Ackerman could have taken that on as an exercise, if we could have suggested it somehow. How experimental of a career would that be? I'm just going to make the same movie, although Ozu sort of did a similar thing, but literally the exact same film over and over again, just changing the lead. I would watch every single one of those. I would too. And so I looked a little bit more up about Delphine Serig, by no means an exhaustive study, so I hope people will go out and watch her entire body of work and learn more about her because I find her fascinating. Mm-hmm. I'm thinking, and I didn't know this at the time, that one of the things that I feel that makes me feel such a kinship to this is that she was my age when she was making this. Chantal Ackerman, of course, was very young, only 25 at the time. And Delphine Serig was a major feminist figure in France. She constantly used her status to promote women's rights. She made a film that I would love to watch and hopefully someday we can get our hands on, which was the film that she directed in 1977, Be Pretty and Shut Up. I have not seen that one either. What is that one? It is a documentary that she made featuring a lot of famous actresses at the time, including Shirley MacLaine, Maria Schneider, and Jane Fonda, and they addressed the sexism that they had to deal with in the film industry. I also missed a huge opportunity when we were in Paris last year. We were staying in the Montparnasse neighborhood. 
We were staying right across the street from the Montparnasse Cemetery, and I just discovered she's actually buried there. And I went through it extensively. It's gigantic, and there are a lot of amazing people there, including Baudelaire, Serge Gainsbourg, so a lot of amazing luminaries. And unfortunately, I didn't get to a chance to pay my respects because she actually died too young. So unlike someone like Deneuve or Huppert, we don't continue to get to experience how she might have grown as an actress. So that's my tangent. Back to the action, we have one of my absolute favorite moments as she goes about doing the washing up, specifically the washing and hand drying of the silverware. When she goes to make her bed and is smoothing it out, she puts out what I consider to be the sex towel, this thing that is always going to go over that comforter to protect it. That's my favorite detail. Now I feel like, again, the mood and tempo changes because this, we finally see her venture out into the world and have interactions with other people. She's going out to essentially complete her chores, get the marketing done, get other business tasks taken care of. One of those is going to get her son's shoes fixed. And the exchange here is really interesting, I think. I almost see her not looking at the man who is going to repair it, even though they clearly know each other. He asks after her son, and she says, what would I do without him? But they're not having a personal exchange. And then the next, she just happens in the way of those things to see an old friend. We are watching this from a distance. We can really only watch their body language a bit and then hear her say that she can't come over for coffee today, which we know is because she has another appointment, but maybe next week. But again, there's no sense that I get from her that she's longing for another human interaction. And then next, one of her neighbors, whom we don't see, but it's the voice of Chantal Ackerman herself, she drops off her baby so that she can go do her marketing as well. Before we move back inside, I did want to mention briefly how much I love Babette Mangolt's cinematography during this excursion as well. Even outdoors, even roaming around, everything still feels just as claustrophobic as it does inside the apartment. Just as square, just as cramped, just as every space in the apartment is occupied with something, every shop, every window, all of them are full of beautiful detail, but leaving not much room to move. You notice when she goes into these establishments, aisles seem awfully small, rooms seem awfully dark. It may just be a US-Europe thing, now that I think about it. We are used to retail spaces most of the time being bright and open and airy these days. And unless you are like us and like to haunt the craziest and most convoluted used bookstores in every city that you go to, you don't often find these little rabbit warrens of shops that look and feel the same way. And still, I think we've mentioned this before, but I just wanted to reiterate, there are no point of view shots. So everything is existing and Jean is moving in and out of them. So back inside the apartment, we've had that baby drop off. My next bit of business that I love is taking out just the right size of used aluminum foil that she has folded up and saved for these kinds of moments. We watch her have her own sort of Spartan lunch, and then the baby is picked up, and we have that exchange, which we never see the other mother outside the door. We only see Jean with the door partly open, 
where it feels very much like that mother's opportunity to finally speak with another adult and unburden herself to the extent that she feels comfortable with, we see more of what she is trying to communicate and what we glean from this discussion, which is not really a discussion, it's more one-sided than that, but of this mother talking about not knowing what to order in the shop and so just standing there and then finally getting something that none of the family likes or enjoys and she spent too much money on it. She's a young mother, we sense. She has a number of kids. And again, I think about what are all these women's lives like? Hmm. The disembodied voice of sacrificial motherhood. The telling detail of that conversation to me is when she says that elliptical, if it were up to just me, the longing that that connotes, the dissatisfaction that that connotes, the feeling trapped in the situation that that connotes. And I love how, even though Jean clearly feels something similar, she does not commiserate with this woman. It is a one-sided conversation, like you mentioned. But Jean does not encourage it, doesn't really respond to it. She handles her business, and that's enough. And again, just like with that interchange with the old friend, it feels like she is not longing for another person to talk with or to express her own feelings, whatever they may be. So it makes me think back to that moment from the day before when she's talking about her motivations in getting married, going down this other path, about wanting to have a child. That's a confusing detail for me as well. Well, not to imply that it's confusing to you, but it's a confusing detail for me, for sure. If you so resent service, why are you opting in for essentially a lifetime contract of it? Maybe you are just naive and ill-informed, you're very young, and are not well-equipped to understand what is going to be demanded of you, perhaps? I think you can resent the thing and also not feel that you have a choice in the matter or that it's just part and parcel. But I did try to think of other ideas of why you might want to have a child or why this person might want to have had a child. And I thought about, does she see it as a way to define herself differently? We don't hear about her parents. We hear about her aunt and uncle is this possibly a way to express parenthood in a different way than it was expressed to her? Does she see it as a way, and I've heard other people say this, to have one person love you and only you? I can't see her being motivated by any of these more romantic ideas. She's clearly not in that mold. Everything seems so transactional with her that I would assume that unless something significant changed in her because of a watershed event, that her initial motivations would be something along those lines as well. And finally, my other idea was that she felt trapped in the situation she was in with her aunt and uncle, mm. and this would be a way to escape that. That's more what I'm thinking. So now she has two more things to finish before her next appointment. One is buying some more yarn, and then the second is stopping at what I'm assuming to be her neighborhood cafe slash bar. To sit in her usual spot. Always the same spot, the first one closest to the door. She drinks and watches for a moment, then leaves. It's not an extended pleasurable outing. We see the John this time. Again, it's not an extended exchange. It's not a lengthy period of time. The difference we see, to me at least, she doesn't turn out the lights in the same way afterwards, and her hair is slightly mussed. It's that series of movements, and then what happens next when everything starts to feel completely disordered for me. 
She walks into the kitchen, stops midway through, turns around, goes back to turn off the light that she had left on, goes back to the kitchen, gets a pot, stops in the bathroom again. It's all of these disordered movements when we've watched her before have the same routine every single time. She needs to go to the store and get potatoes, and as she's peeling those potatoes, her bangs are in disarray. And with the expression on her face, I almost expected that she might cut herself, whether accidentally or on purpose. That would be a big movement for Ackerman, I think, right here. The things that indicate this subtle unraveling are just that. They are very subtle. Movements you would not give a second thought in most films, or if you actually even did them yourself, you wouldn't think a single thing about it. I think it's the way she peels the potatoes. She does it like my mother, where she cuts into herself, <laughs> which to me, always I always expect somebody's going to lose a finger. That's bad knife technique. But this kitchen is set up for disaster. I'm surprised the curtains aren't constantly in flames. She hears the door. Her son is home again. She was not at the door to greet him this time. He also says, your hair's a mess. And now during dinner time, more things are slightly off. She repeats again like she had said the day before and probably every day, don't read while you eat. And this time, the next course is not ready after they're done with the soup, which feels just insane to me at this point now that we've gone through so much of this time. And there's more just waiting and sitting in one place because you don't know what else to do while you wait the two minutes for this other thing to be done. There was a lot going on in this non-conversation for me at the table. We've begun to establish clearly that she is only comfortable if every moment of the day is taken up with a very specific task. But did you get the sense at this juncture, with things thrown off as they are, she was longing for something specific like a conversation with her son to fill this gap, or did that occur to you? It didn't, but maybe that makes me an odd person because, again, in reading and going through those synopses, the word lonely is used, and I've never considered her to be lonely. Because to me, if she were, she would reach out for a conversation with the son. She would take her old friend up on the opportunity to go have coffee. She would commiserate with the other mother in the building. I do want to save a little bit of that until day three, though. Okay. So I'm biding my time just a, a bit. I don't know if I necessarily agree in that case. I think that maybe she does. When I watch her at the table... Some of her discomfort strikes me as meaningful interaction with her son that's outside of the routine seems like just another thing on the list of options that are unavailable to her. But I feel a slight longing, the way you noted that you saw the slight smile on her face when he arrived home. So maybe I'm picking up on that and then extrapolating it a little bit. But I feel like she wished that something else was happening right here between them. And it made me think a whole lot about personal responsibility in the situations that she finds herself in. These rituals, these domestic rituals with which she keeps everything at bay. You mentioned the drying of the silverware individually. When she went out of the house, the trips to get the same groceries all the time. And now this lack of conversation with her son. I'm confounded by the fact that if she does indeed want something else, she feels like she doesn't even have agency to change these things. What is it that she's warding off by drying the silverware and laying it out in a specific pattern? If you are angry about getting the same groceries every day of the week, buy different groceries. And if you want to have a conversation with your son, initiate that conversation because you can't put the onus on him exactly. He's a child. We can't necessarily hold him to what you would expect 
a reasonable grown adult to do in that situation. And he also, at different points, tries to initiate a conversation, tries to reach out. So if you are upset about the fact that this is not happening, then make it happen and say something about something other than mashed potatoes. I don't feel comfortable saying that she is upset about buying the same groceries. I'm not even sure we're there yet. When you say there, where is there? In the progression of events. And I'm not even sure I read the ending that way either. Okay. But I think it's completely reasonable what you've just expressed. Yeah, my point, I guess, still stands in the sense that where does her personal responsibility enter into this equation? Why not control the things you can control and change the things that you have power to change? But maybe you're right. Maybe she doesn't desire this change. Is that what you mean by that? I think so, that she is, in a sense, controlling what she can control, which is water spots on the silver and raising her son the way she thinks he should be raised and doing her duty the way that she thinks it should be done. But we don't have that clear insight into what she is thinking and feeling, and that's on purpose. So as a result, I and you and every other person that watches this can read this a completely different way? Yes, and I think about what Ackerman's direction was, which was around, in any kind of question that Delphine Sehrig may have had around, essentially, what's my motivation here? She said, it's not about your feelings. You are doing this, then you're doing this, then you're doing this, then you're doing this. So from the perspective of Ackerman's direction, it's not about choice. It's not about feelings. There is no choice. Okay, that makes it easier to digest for me, because I think we both feel like there are always usually more options available to people than they acknowledge. Even though situations may be difficult and you feel like I don't have a lot of choices or even a choice, there are typically things that people are not taking into account or just are not doing because they are not as comfortable. And that comes back to you and I just in our regular lives. What you continually try to remind me of when I get down about something or I have that tunnel vision. And it's these rituals that she engages in, and some things that I see you do that make me wonder, for your sake, if this doesn't make the most sense right now, and it brings no joy, then why worry about it? Because I think I'm much less service-inclined than you are, and that's not just in relation to one another. You do a lot of charity things that often don't occur to me. You've always been this way, yes. working for nonprofits, Volunteering from a very young age because that's what my family instilled in me. But as it boils down to household stuff... I often think, what is it that's better about this, that's worth worrying about this for, right now at least? Why not just leave it? Because my situation, I think, is the opposite, at least of this character, in that every spare second of my day is filled with work or is spoken for in some way. So I would love an opportunity to just sit and contemplate, rather than filling it with something to keep those thoughts and feelings away from myself. So in that regard, it is hard for me to relate to this situation. It has to be a difficult road for people who it is a necessity to have everything just so. Do they constantly feel powerless and therefore have to rectify it with these things that they control? Like you mentioned, the spots on the silverware. Again, it's the opposite for me. I often feel like I missed my chance to jump off the carousel. I often say to you things in the vein of, oh, that's no good now because I missed my shot. Even though that's a silly and absurd thing to do, circumstances have not changed drastically. It's just my perception of those things. Because it didn't happen exactly when I wanted it to happen. And that makes me angry. 
But ultimately, I realize that this is all just chaos. I'm a fool to think I can control anything, so why not just get on with it? It's important for me to say right here, I don't want to give anybody the impression that I'm somehow Mother Teresa and you are out for number one, because that is not the case. (laughs) No, no, no. I just mean that it's your natural inclination where it's actually something I have to work at. I really want to get back to that discussion because I have a very specific question to ask you and the audience in general, but I can only ask it in relation to the ending. Okay, okay, we'll save it then. I do have it written down, so I won't forget. Now, as this evening is wearing on, there are still these differences than what we saw from the previous day. She goes to try to answer this letter from Aunt Fernand and is having a difficult time doing it, getting started, completing it. She ends up just folding the letter and leaving it partially hanging out of the stenopad, which just makes me insane. (laughs) After all of this. The thing I think that drives me the craziest, and this is not out of character, is that instead of laying his ruler down lengthwise in his bag, that little nitwit has it sticking up out of the corner to easily be broken off at any point. And how could he possibly get the top flap over and buckled? It's crazy. (laughs) More things. She has not turned on the radio until the son mentions it. She starts her knitting, but doesn't really finish it or progress with it. And he mentions at one point it's this time for them to go out to wherever it is they're going out on a Wednesday evening. He asks about, can we not go because we ate so late? No, we're going anyway. Those things that you mentioned, like the radio not being turned on, seem like major signifiers. I know they're not nearly as dramatic as possibly cutting your thumb while you're peeling potatoes, but in relation to the other things, the details I specifically like in this section, the radio thing seems monumental. The subtle things that I really loved in this stretch. One instance where she goes to turn off the light switch, misses it, and then reaches back to turn it off a second time. Again, something you wouldn't even notice. When she has the kettle on to boil, she accidentally knocks it gently against the burner instead of setting it directly on top. Again, something that you wouldn't blink at, but it's a series of fantastic, fine little details that make all the difference in helping you understand how much things have gone awry. Now, before all hell breaks loose on Thursday, which is what we're expecting to have happen at this point, we've got one more thing to go over on this Wednesday evening. They're back home, and Sylvain starts talking about, through his friend Jan, his ideas on sex. And how he had this idea of his father thrusting into his mother using his penis like a sword because of this schoolyard talk. And how much he hated his father for that idea of doing this thing to his mother. Much like with the peeling potatoes, that is bad technique. (laughs) And she essentially shuts him down. There's no point in talking about these things. And it seems like he's going to ask another question. Nope, lights out at that point. And just like that, Wednesday is now over and Thursday has begun. She puts that same housecoat on but misses the second button. I think of this housecoat as the equivalent to the table in Tom Stoppard's Arcadia, where entropy is clearly setting in. I can't imagine such significant disorder being communicated so simply as a missed button on a housecoat. She leaves the window open, she doesn't make the bed, she misses more lights, she drops the buff brush as she's cleaning up his shoes. Why do his shoes need to be shined? And if they do, let him do it. Unless again, like you mentioned, 
This is not for him. This is for her. Or other people. I don't know. As crazy as I am, I'm not that crazy. I don't care about (laughs) shoes. She's apparently forgotten something because she has to yell at him out through the window, but he doesn't hear her. So whatever that missed opportunity was, we don't know. That shouting is so uncharacteristic as to be shocking. It is. I cannot imagine her hanging her head out the window to do that. She's got to wash a dish a second time. She drops one of the spoons, so she has to wash that again. She's got more of these outside chores to do before she has to be back home for another appointment, her regular Thursday appointment. And those things, all of these chores that she has to get done, don't go according to plan either. She can't get the right button for this coat. She can't get any stamps from the machine. She goes to one of these neighborhood shops, but they're not quite open yet, so she has to wait in another window for anyone else that might be an opportunity to explore something else. But she is just standing there waiting because she doesn't know what else to do. I had to ask myself, do you think this is a legitimate question at this point, watching this behavior? Is it reasonable to consider that she might be mildly mentally ill? Is there OCD involved here? What is she struggling with? When you see a behavior once or twice, it's not necessarily remarkable in isolation. But when you come to understand that that behavior has been practiced the exact same way for six years or longer, and if it isn't, like I mentioned, then the shadows come for me, it's a different story. And especially considering the climax of this film, I have to wonder how severe her condition has been all along for something as simple as a few of these things not working out in her favor and throwing her routine off a little to result in such dire circumstances. Do you want to get there right now? Because that's the actual precise question I was going to ask at the very end. Should we just do that now? This is where I made note of it. So if you want to get into it, I'm sorry if I'm skipping ahead. I'm struggling. I think I have to ask. Is it okay if we save it okay. just for a bit? Okay, just a little okay. more. We're, we're, we're so close. We're into day three. We're nearing the end. Okay. And that is a totally reasonable question to ask, I think, especially in light of what happens when she gets back, and it's all about this coffee that cannot be made properly. And by properly, I mean to her standards, not to mine. I don't give a crap, and I don't drink coffee anyway. But she is looking for something and cannot get there. She can't get that baby to stop fussing when she gets that drop off. Again, right here, the scene you mentioned with the coffee, there is a sea change that, if you're not looking closely, you could possibly miss. For the first time, it seems like we are regarding her straight on, and we see her eyes open and looking forward. Practically every scene prior to this was at a greater distance, or her eyes were downcast. There's a resoluteness to her that seems different from here. Like she is focused on something in the distance that she is moving inexorably toward. We know what that is now. But from here on, because of the slight change in angle, because of the slight change in the way that she is being photographed, I see her as constantly regarding this thing. It feels to me for all the world like a fateful decision has been made. Well, she still has more to do. She cannot get that same seat in the cafe that she always gets. And she is in a shop And I feel like she tells this woman more than she needs to about her family. This, to me, feels like, what is she doing? What has happened? She would never normally disclose this much, and this is to a stranger at this point. When she gets home, there's a package waiting for her, and this is this birthday gift that Aunt Fernand had referred to in this letter, and it's a new nightgown. 
But before she can get through trying it on or even getting it put away fully, her appointment is here. Now this is completely different because we are in the bedroom for this sex. I have to wonder why prior to this point was the sex not displayed as tediously and matter-of-factly as every other chore that she went through in her day. It doesn't necessarily have to be graphic, but it certainly makes me regard it as different and other when it's not included in the rundown of the normal day's activities and is somehow sequestered. What do you think the motivation was to keep that so separate until this final point? The shock? I think, first off, it's, as you were describing earlier, that we see the bits that are left out of other films. In other films, we see the sex, Mm, but the housework is sequestered. Gotcha. So in this film, peeling potatoes is more interesting than sex, and especially for her. This time, we see her taking her blouse off as she is regarding herself in the mirror. She folds it. She waits. And then we have them in the bed. And the man, whom we don't know who that is is on top, to me, barely moving, and so we just watch her face, which we fully see. And we can tell from her face and her skin color and her arm movement that she's starting to have a reaction. And it grows. It doesn't feel pleasurably connected to him Mm -hmm. or even pleasurably experienced by her. There is, at least I saw, a faint smile at the end. Our next moment is, it's well over at this point, and he is watching her put her blouse back on. He has his shirt, but instead of putting it back on, he leans back in the bed, clearly pleased. He is also not on top of the towel, and I say that because maybe this is why she does what she does next, which is take the scissors that were there on the dressing table, which she had used to open this package, and stab him to death in one movement. Our last several minutes, and I believe it takes about seven minutes, are her in the dark with blood on her, breathing. At some point, she closes her eyes for a moment. There's more breath. There's a big sigh. She drops her head, which feels like this is the weight taking over in her body. She moves and sinks and fades, and the movie is over. So back to this question that we've been putting off. Why does she do what she does? Is it OCD, mental illness? Is she undone by the mundane nature of life and her tasks? Is it something else? Did he not have sex on top of the towel? This part is difficult for me because I'm conflicted a little bit. I do not believe at all in this everyday life is just too much as a mindset or a lifestyle. Beat it with that, Percy Shelley. Clearly people reach breaking points. What is it that gets them there? I have no idea. I don't think we can figure that out. The combination for you obviously wouldn't be the combination for me. This is obviously full of truths for you. And for me, for a lot of people. What makes it so, though, in your case? And I ask because I wonder a lot of things about her. Does she feel shame about this work? Would she rather be doing something else? Specifically, most importantly, what is it that she cannot bear? What I like to think most about is the aftermath of this. Imagine being in the police station. How would she go about explaining herself? Because that's not something that she does normally. The explain herself part, not just the killing people part. (laughs) The killing people part is also interesting to me in the fact that It seems so outlandish in this setting. 
we watch things that are absolutely absurd and over-the-top horror-wise. We think of something like Texas Chainsaw Massacre that we did an episode about and how extreme that example is. But this somehow feels so much more than any of that cartoonish violence. And just like I do not believe, as you don't believe, that this is about I've done this thing 5,000 times and it just made me go insane, I also don't believe that this was because a man gave her pleasure. I don't feel that that's why it happened either. This unwanted orgasm that she experiences is just the last straw in a huge pile of mounting disorder. I don't mean to worm out of the question, but I really don't think that Ackerman meant for me to know for sure. That's legitimate. There are tons of filmmakers that I love that are just like that. Chantal Ackerman for one, David Lynch for another. That make the work. The work stands on its own. It's for you to interpret. (laughs) It's art that way. So ultimately, I'm left with all of these possible reasons, all of these reasonable reasons, whatever I might find myself doing in the same circumstance. I can't remember exactly what I thought when I first saw this, but I assumed what we were leading towards was that possibly she was going to do self-harm. That's exactly what I thought, too, the first time. So from start to finish, I was mesmerized by this. I was hypnotized by this. I couldn't wait to see what was going to happen. It's very long, I guess. It never feels like that. No, it goes by so quickly to me. And I keep wanting to watch it again and again because maybe Delphine Serig snuck something in that Chantal Ackerman didn't mean for her to. Or maybe Chantal Ackerman wants to tell me something else the more I watch it. This is why I love Ackerman's movies so much. This is what it is about her style that suits me as a viewer in particular. What she does so well is show me something and then make me continue to look at it and continue to look at it until it reaches the point where I feel like, okay, I got it, and then continue to look at it and continue to look at it. So I push through the point of, okay, I've seen everything that there is to see here, and I reach a new point of, oh, I never would have noticed that had you not made me focus on it so intently. It's that way with this film. It's that way with my recommendation. It's that way with so much of what she does. It's the thing she is absolutely the best at. Well, having said that, how about we get to recommendations then? Well, my recommendation is Hotel Monterey from 1972, conceived of and directed by Chantal Ackerman, working again previously in this case with Babette Mangold as cinematographer. This one is probably even more formally rigid and experimental for people, so it might be a stretch. There's no narrative conceit here. She basically went to a run-down hotel in New York City, one that she frequented once in a while, and shot it in silence in long extended takes of hallways, rooms, elevators, and worked over the course of a running time of just over an hour from the first floor of the hotel in the evening to the roof of the hotel as it becomes day. And she does that exact thing that I was talking about, about making me look and look and look some more until you start to see pertinent details that you would have completely glossed over in the time that you are normally given to look at a scene. And she said that she and Mangle basically just set up the camera and her takes were as long as her gut told her to shoot it. It's all assembled into something that I think is really beautiful and odd and not anything you see anyone else doing unless you watch a lot of Michael Snow or other experimental filmmakers. And the most important lesson that I take from Hotel Monterey and almost all of her other films is that Things become beautiful when you look at them long enough. It's true because I've been sitting here looking at you for a couple of hours now, and it's just better than ever. Thanks. Do you have a recommendation for us this time? 
I chose something that is of that top to bottom school. And this is the person who makes me understand things in ways I never could have and have a hell of a time doing it. If I had never known that this person and his work existed, I would be poorer for it. So my recommendation is National Gallery from 2014, directed by Frederick Wiseman, who we've mentioned many times on the podcast. This is a documentary that goes inside one of the greatest museums of the world, the National Gallery in London. This takes us through the office, to the galleries, to the teaching school, to the viewers, to the visitors, to things happening around it, to special events, to direction and running of the museum, and every single thing in between. I think my favorite part was going into the area where they do restoration of the works. I loved that. That was so beautiful. My favorite part, I think, was watching the class with the blind Mm -hmm. people experience art. It's amazing. So Frederick Wiseman does what he does, which is make you go inside an institution and discover every single part of it. I wish this was 50 hours long. (laughs) I wish that everything that he did was 50 hours long, and I want to watch everything that he does. I've only gotten through maybe a quarter of it, a fifth of it. Who knows? I've still got so much to go, and I can't wait. So once again, that's two great recommendations, Hotel Monterey and National Gallery. And that brings us to the end of episode 58. If you have not taken a look at our Patreon yet, we would certainly appreciate it if you go and do that. That is at patreon.com slash magic lantern. You can support us at all sorts of levels, starting as low as a dollar a month. And for $5 a month, you get bonus content so that you never have to go a Monday without Magic Lantern in your life. I want to say a special thanks to our latest contributors, Linky Barmore and David Fiore. We appreciate it so much. Thank you. I know this September on the show has been a little emotionally heavy, but things are changing as we move into October because Coloween is coming. Can't wait. We've got so many fun things planned. We have three regular episodes coming, plus three mini episodes for our Patreon donors. It's our favorite time of the year, and there's a ton of fun stuff coming up, so keep an eye out. And if you would just like to get in touch with us, you can reach us at magiclanternpodcast at gmail.com. We are on Instagram, YouTube, and Facebook. Just search for Magic Lantern Podcast in any of those venues. You can find us on Twitter, at lantern underscore cast. And I would just like to say thanks to everyone who has supported the show, shared it, given us feedback since last time. Grindhouse Dave, Drew Tavendale, who just sent us a really nice email. Drew, I'm going to answer that as soon as we sign off here. Drew also is part of a fantastic show that we love called Fuds on Film. Please go listen to them. Keith Rich, Tim Lego, Matt Gasteyer, Eric Parkinson, Evan McDonald, Andy Wolverton. Claire Kempa had a lot of great insights and also took me to task one more person for my take on Grace Kelly. <laughs> Thanks, Claire. That was a really fun conversation. And Jason Beamish. We are on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher Radio, just about any podcatcher you use you can find us. We would certainly enjoy it if you would leave us a rating or review via any of those services. And finally, you can find all of our episodes, including supplemental material, at the website magiclanternpodcast.com. And thank you for listening to the Magic Lantern Podcast.